Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. You know that good theology often boils down to good definitions. And in good theology, you shouldn't take definitions for granted. Don't take definitions for granted. Definitions are important, especially when we talk about discipleship. What is a disciple? You better know what one is. Because in Jesus, some of his last words, he told us to go and make them. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, he told us. What exactly are you trying to make? What exactly are you trying to produce? What does a disciple look like? Begin with the end in mind. What is your definition of a disciple? There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of talk about discipleship in the church today, isn't there? Everybody talks about making disciples. We just can't seem to agree on what a disciple is. And so now enters the Lordship Salvation proponents who have a different definition of discipleship. Misunderstanding what a disciple is confuses the gospel. It dangerously will leave people in spiritual immaturity instead of moving them on into maturity where God desires. I think we all recognize that the churches are full of too many people who are in spiritual infancy and have not moved on and gone on and grown on to live productive and fruitful, reproducing type of lives. What do we do about the problem? Well, the Lordship Salvation Camp says that we should front load the gospel. And let's raise the ante, let's raise the standard so that we make sure that only those who are committed to going on can really become Christians to begin with, they would say. Is that the answer? Doesn't this breed legalism and insecurity which never ever produces spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness? You may alter the external, but not the internal. You may change the behavior, but not the heart with a system like that. Let's take a look at how Lordship Salvation understands discipleship. Just some of the quotes, and I probably won't read them all, but some of the shorter ones. John MacArthur says, The gospel Jesus proclaimed was a call to discipleship, a call to follow him in submissive obedience. He equates the gospel call with the discipleship call. Another writer says, we maintain that being a believer and a disciple are the same. A believer disciple has salvation. One who has salvation is a disciple. He couldn't be much clearer about what he believes. Smith says, those who believe in Christ follow him, and those who do not follow him do not really believe in him. Discipleship is an invitation to salvation, not to some deeper experience of secondary commitment. And then uh, another quote, the call to faith and discipleship are the same and cannot be separated. And then uh, the last one by J.I. Packer in his classic book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. In our presentation of Christ's gospel, therefore, we need to lay a similar stress on the cost of following Christ and making sinners face it soberly before we urge them to respond to the message of free forgiveness. In common honesty, we must not conceal the fact that free forgiveness, in one sense, will cost everything. Is that going to affect how you do evangelism? Absolutely. How widely read is J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God? You'll find it still in print, I'm sure. You see, there's a different definition that Lordship Salvation offers 
for discipleship. How does the Bible present discipleship? What's the biblical definition of a disciple? Well, the word itself comes from a, the verb to learn, and so it simply means in its simplest form, learner, pupil, adherent to a system. But you and I recognize that there are different degrees of commitment involved in learning something. You know that because you went through college, perhaps, or school, any kind of school. Some of you may have just taken a course and audited it, minimum commitment, but you were there, you were a student, you were learning. Others might have gone for the whole thing, the whole banana, tried to get on the dean's list, graduate with honors, the ultimate commitment. There are learners of different levels of commitment. We see this in John chapter 6. We see in John chapter 6 a multitude of people who are following Jesus out of basically curiosity or perhaps political even motivations. And yet in John chapter 6, by the end, there are only 12 who remain, 12 who are committed. In John chapter 6, believe it or not, Jesus even, uh, John refers to those who turned away from Jesus as disciples and it says that Jesus knew that they didn't believe. So in the broadest sense, you see, a disciple in its broadest sense is somebody who is a follower, somebody who's learning from a system, and it may even be someone who doesn't believe. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. Peter was one of the 12 disciples, but there is quite a difference between the two. What I guess I'm saying is I'm cautioning you to be careful about how you define the term disciple, not lock it into a rigid definition. It's a fairly flexible term as long as you have the idea of learning, pupil, adherent. But theologically, it can be kind of a flexible term, always determined more carefully by its context. In the New Testament, we read about the disciples of Moses, the disciples of the Pharisees, the disciples of John the Baptist, and then, of course, there's the disciples of Jesus, which is the predominant use in the New Testament, the one we're most familiar and comfortable with. So in its essence, a disciple is a follower, a student, a pupil, an adherent. What also helps us understand what a disciple is in the New Testament is the invitation that we see Jesus offering to people. He invites them to follow him. He invites them in a synonymous term to come after him. Now, both these terms mean much more than just a physical walking behind. Both these terms really denote to the first century mind, the system of education and discipleship that they had then, which was based on a rabbi calling together a group of disciples who would share his life, who would travel with him, who would live with him, who would eat with him, who would stay with him and basically share their lives and live with them. They didn't sign up for uh, Discipleship 101 and never knew who their professor was. They would either seek out the man they wanted to be like, or that rabbi would seek them out and invite them into discipleship. When Jesus said, follow me, when he said, come after me, I'm convinced he was offering to those people a specific invitation, a pointed and direct invitation to take up a life of discipleship and to follow him and share his life. The goal of discipleship also helps us understand what a disciple is. The best statement of the goal of a disciple is in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 25. In Matthew chapter 10, 25, we read, it is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. You see, the whole goal of a disciple is to be like his teacher. This tells us that being a disciple 
is a progression. It is a process. And if our teacher is Jesus Christ, it is interminable in this life. It's never over until we are glorified and made like him. So discipleship, by its very definition, is a process. I'm fond of saying that there is a sense in which every disciple is challenged to become more of a disciple. No matter where you are in your Christian life today, God wants you somewhere else tomorrow. That's discipleship. And what he's asking you to do today is different from what he's going to ask me to do today. It's a process that spans our lifetime. And nobody retires from it. I venture to say that Dr. Rodmacher has seniority on most of us here. But I venture to say that the commitments of discipleship that Jesus Christ is asking him to make today are just as difficult as the one he is asking you and I to make. The journey goes on. It is a process. Now, you'll notice some of the differences between salvation and discipleship I've listed there and tried by indentation to show you how they might be grouped. That basically is going to form some of my comments about the problems I have with the lordship view of discipleship. They say that, well, we should, we should notice the obvious differences and that we cannot merge the two. For example, uh, eternal salvation, justification speaks of justification. Discipleship speaks of sanctification. Our eternal salvation then is positional righteousness where discipleship is practical righteousness. We know that salvation is by grace, through faith, it's free. But discipleship is by works through faithfulness, and it's costly. Our eternal salvation depends on Christ's love for me, Christ's commitment to me, and Christ taking his cross for me. Discipleship means, involves my love for Christ, my commitment to Christ, and my taking up my cross daily for him. The focus of eternal salvation is eternal life. Discipleship, however, focuses on eternal rewards. Eternal salvation is an involves an unbeliever's response. Discipleship involves a believer's response. Eternal salvation is instantaneous and a new birth. Discipleship is progressive and a continued growth. Eternal salvation is, depends on one condition, believe. Discipleship depends on many conditions, which I'll mention later. Eternal salvation is inclusive of all. Discipleship is exclusive. So let's talk about some of these, break them down and talk about them by category. First of all, lordship salvation misses the mark for discipleship because it confuses justification and sanctification. We've said a lot about this already. We won't spend a lot of time here. Just as they confuse faith in their definition of faith, justification, sanctification, the same with discipleship. Justification being the declaration of God of our positional righteousness before him, sanctification being our progressive growth in righteousness and godly conduct, learning to live in obedience, learning to live up to our new position. But we cannot confuse the two. They are related, but they must remain distinct. How clear that comes out in the book of Romans, where justification is clearly dealt with in the early chapters, chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, and then when we come to chapter 6, we, we find a discussion of our sanctification, usually 6 through 8. 
Isn't it interesting that in the book of Romans, the first command doesn't come to chapter 6 and verse 11? Why is that? Because obedience has nothing to do with justification, everything to do with sanctification. And so the commands don't begin until chapter 6 and verse 11. Another problem with lordship salvation is it negates grace with works. What does Romans 11 chapter 6 say? If it's of works, it's no longer grace. Pretty simple. You can't mix the two. It's either by works or by grace. Lordship salvation confuses the two. Free grace believes that it is through faith we are saved, through faith in Christ. But it is through faithfulness to Christ that we are discipled. Lordship salvation talks about costly grace, but free grace says that salvation, that there's only one kind of grace and it's free. Discipleship is costly, but grace is free. John MacArthur says, quote, salvation is both free and costly, unquote. How so? How can something be free and costly? Well, he says it's a paradox, a seeming contradiction. No, it's just bad theology, bad English and bad logic. A cannot equal B. Is salvation costly? To God, yes. To Jesus, yes. But we have a word for that, and the word is redemption, which in its essence means to purchase or to buy. It implies cost. Let's be more careful, as we've been exhorted, to talk about salvation in its various terms and various perspectives. When we talk about eternal salvation and its cost, we talk about redemption, but the cost is not ours. It's God's. It's Jesus. He paid the price. But what does Romans 3 and verse 24 say? about our redemption and the freeness of salvation? Couldn't be clearer. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Free to us, costly to God. And the only reason we can have a free salvation is because God paid a tremendous price. So we don't, we don't say there's no price. We don't deny there's a cost to salvation. We just say God paid it by His grace. That's the wonderfulness of our salvation. Salvation is free to us, but it costs him something. Talk about costly grace is a contradiction in terms. We call that an oxymoron. Like military intelligence is an oxymoron. Russian economy, social security. <laughs> Honorable senator. Those are oxymorons, contradictions. There's no such thing as costly grace. Grace, by its very definition, is free. There's only one kind of grace. It's absolutely free. We talk about free grace, and that's a redundancy, but we have to do it because the debate has forced us to do it. We talk about free, the free grace movement. That's kind of like talking about the inerrant Word of God. Why do we have to say that? Or the infallible inerrant God, Word of God, or the infallible inspired inerrant Word of God. All those are redundancies, but the theology, the debate that's going on demands it of us. It's a shame. We believe that Christ's love for us is what brings us our salvation. It is our love for Christ that is part of the discipleship process. In the same way, it was Christ's commitment to me that took him to the cross, and my commitment to him that helps me to grow as a disciple. His commitment to me that took him to the cross, and he took up his cross and carried it down the streets of 
Jerusalem to Golgotha for me, and I am to take up my cross daily for him in discipleship. And then we have eternal life versus eternal rewards. It's amazing to me how many times Jesus Christ and Paul the Apostle use rewards, the judgment seat of Christ, as a motivation for Christian living, as something to look forward to and to shape our lives by. It was so good to hear the exhortation about keeping our eyes on the eternal significance of life in the kingdom of God, because Jesus and Paul certainly did, and yet we hear so little teaching about that. For one reason, lordship has confused the two, and they don't like to talk about rewards, and so many rewards passages are interpreted as salvation passages. Discipleship truth interpreted as salvation truth, and we lose the beauty of, of the promise of rewards and eternal significance and kingdom life. And a whole section of Scripture is eviscerated. Well, lordship salvation confuses discipleship, which also results in an unrealistic expectation from the unregenerate. You see, the lordship salvation view of discipleship assumes a Christian response from unbelievers. But what would an unbeliever understand about carrying his cross? What would an unbeliever understand about loving God with all your heart? He doesn't know God. Would we expect an unbeliever to give up all of his possessions or be willing to? What kind of logic, logic is it that demands of an unbeliever such sophisticated, mature Christian's decisions that I am still grappling with myself in my own life? Just doesn't make sense to expect from someone who is dead in his sins, to ex expect from someone whose mind has been veiled by Satan himself to respond to God with a fully loving heart at the moment of salvation, to respond to God in total commitment, in total submission, to be willing to suffer for him. We believe that obedience and commitment is a response to God's wonderful grace. And that's why Romans 12.1 is Romans 12.1, not Romans 1.1. He had to wait until 12.1 so he could say, in view of God's mercies, I want you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's why he waits until Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 to exhort us to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. He had to tell us about who we are before he tells us what to do. And yet we're so guilty of getting the cart before the horse and telling people what to do before we tell them what they are and why they should do it. Even we who believe in free grace will fall into that error. Listen to the words of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 as well. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. There is a process. There is a progression. We receive Christ. We trust in Him as Savior. He comes inside of us. We now learn to walk with Him in fellowship. The progression probably comes out best in Titus. You might want to look at Titus chapter 2. I, can't, I don't think it could be said any clearer of how salvation should result in discipleship, but that they are sequential. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus has brought us salvation. That salvation teaches us as a consequence how to live a godly life. The word used for teaching there is a word that, word that was used of training children. How appropriate. 
since the Christian life is a process of taking those who are not mature into maturity, from spiritual infancy into spiritual adulthood. So it's unrealistic to expect of the unregenerate very mature Christian decisions. It takes the grace of God to teach us how to make those decisions and commitments. Did it ever occur to the Lordship Salvation person, for example, that somebody who's drowning may just want to get out of the water and not become a lifeguard or become a missionary? When someone realizes that they are lost in their sins and they are destined to separation from God, what is their concern? A legitimate concern is to be saved. Some may be saved with a heart of gratitude. Some may be saved with a loving heart. I don't deny that these things can happen uh, uh, so overlapping that we can't hardly uh, logically separate the two. Some people realize that when Jesus saves them that they owe him everything and they should commit to him, and they do from, from uh, day one. That happens, but probably more likely there's, there, there are people like me who coasted along for a good while before we really understood what the Christian life should be about and what God has done for us. And then no matter how they start, God is going to continue to ask of them decisions and commitments along the way. Well, Lordship Salvation misses the mark in discipleship because it also, their understanding, leaves you nowhere to grow. You see, if disciples are born, not made, then there's nowhere to grow. You understand what I'm saying? If it takes, if, the, if we understand the conditions of discipleship, which are love God with all of your heart, love him more than your mother, brother, sister, father, etc. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me, um, be willing to commit all of your possessions, be willing to suffer for Jesus Christ, abide in his word. All these are conditions for discipleship that we find in the Gospels. Now, if somebody understands that, if somebody makes those commitments in order to become a Christian, where does that leave them to grow? But growth is expected. Peter said, as newborn babes desire pure, the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. He said, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Part of that growth is dealing with the reality of sin in our lives. How does that leave room for the reality of sin in our lives? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, no matter what you do with the carnal Christian there, he's still a carnal Christian. It's still a babe in Christ, undeniably. There is growth that needs to take place. And when you get to chapter 11 and verse 30, you see Christians who are living in carnality and abusing the Lord's Supper, and they die in their carnality. And yet they are believers who have not submitted. See, discipleship is not realistic about its expectations for Christian growth, nor is it realistic about the reality of sin in our lives. I think the Bible is very clear that there is always another level of commitment that we are called to. But that's just the excitement of the Christian life. Life is an adventure with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm quite an outdoors person. When I get out to walking in the mountains or the hills, I just kind of, I'm like a billy goat. I kind of caught Got to start climbing. I love a good view, and so I'll climb up. I was in Southern California this summer, and I climbed up on one hill. You know, but it's awful, awful deceiving sometimes when you're in the mountains because you think you just get up to that top, and you'll have a beautiful view, you know, and then you get up there, and you find, well, I'm not really at the top, am I? There's another ridge I didn't see, and I bet the view's even better up there. And so you go on to, the, like, knuckles on your hand, you go up to the next ridge, and you say, boy, the view's beautiful here, but you know what? There's still another one there. And so pretty, pretty soon you're getting way up there. 
That's what discipleship is like. God takes us to a level. Life is exciting, but you know something? There's another level to get to. Greater challenges, greater rewards, greater excitement in store for us. That's how Jesus called his own disciples. If you study the process of discipleship and his calls and appeals to them through the Gospels, you'll find that he called disciples to be disciples, kind of like calling saved people to be saved. But in terms of discipleship, for example, in John chapter 1, we find Peter coming to Jesus Christ. We, we, we see Jesus inviting the earliest disciples, Andrew, to follow him. And there we're exposed to Peter, where we assume that Peter probably believed. And yet, we know that later in life, as, as told by Mark chapter 1 or Matthew chapter 4, Jesus sees them by the, by the sea, and they're, and they're um, mending their nets or fishing. And he says, come follow me. Well, didn't he already say that to Peter and John? Yes, he did, but he needs to say it again. They knew more about him. The commitment level needed to change. What do you do with Luke chapter 5 when he sees them again by the sea and he says, follow me? Most people assume that that is this a, a um, parallel account of Matthew chapter 4. I don't. I explain the details of my dissertation. But I think it's significant to note that the, the setting is different. The circumstances are different. They're doing different things. And yet Jesus says to Peter, again, follow me. In fact, Peter, Jesus says to Peter a number of times, follow me, follow me, follow me through the Gospels. And then you get to John chapter 21, and he tells Peter twice, follow me. He's surely a believer by now, isn't he? Why in John chapter 21 does Jesus have to tell Peter to follow him? Because he's given him new revelation, and he's challenging him to a greater commitment based on that new content. He told Peter, he said, when you're older, you're going to be stretched out and you're going to be led where you don't want to go. And you're, he's referring to his manner of death. And then he says, now you follow me. Now that I've told you you're going to die, you follow me. Well, you see, follow me takes on a whole new significance to somebody who just learns he's going to die. And then Peter turns to John and, and sees John over there and says, what about him? What about this guy? And Jesus says, none of your business. You follow me. Well, there's a new revelation. God has an individually designed ministry for us, an individual calling for us. Don't worry about your brother. Get on with what I've told you to do. And he says again to Peter, follow me. You want a model for discipleship? Look at Peter. That's why Peter's so prominent in the scriptures. The first apostle always named, the spokesman for the group, an extrovert. An extrovert is someone who talks while he's thinking of something to say. That's Peter. But thank God that, that uh, we're given the model of Peter to look at because Peter wasn't a perfect person. And it shows us also that part of discipleship is learning how to fail. Discipleship is a journey, but that journey has setbacks and that journey has obstacles. And we sometimes trip and fall, and Peter did. And yet, during that whole account of Peter denying Jesus Christ, if you look at that account in John, you'll see that word follow appear every now and then. Are you a follower of that man? No, I'm not. Oh, yes, he was. He followed him secretly at a distance. It's an amazing study. I've got seven sermons on Peter as a follower, so I'm not going to preach them all right now. So he appeals to his curiosity in John chapter 1. He appeals to his devotion and duty in John, in, in John 1. He appeals to his devotion and duty in John chapter 21. Jesus never lets up the pressure of discipleship. It is a progression. It is a process. It is a journey. It is a call to commitment. 
there is a sense in which a disciple always is challenged to become more of a disciple. So how can we say that those commitments are all involved in coming to Christ as Savior? How about what do you do with the secret disciples in John? Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. They were secret disciples, but it took them time to come out. hate to use that term with them, but it took them time to, to show their faith. The process of discipleship goes on. It is never finished until glorification. Lordship salvation misses the mark in discipleship because it confuses the gospel. If discipleship and sal eternal salvation are equated, then according to their definition, there are many conditions for salvation. You must deny yourself, according to Luke 9.23. You must take up your cross. You must follow Christ. Jesus said in Luke 14.26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33, so likewise, whoever you does not forsake, all he has cannot be my disciple. John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There's a lot of conditions for discipleship. One condition for eternal salvation, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we take their definition of discipleship, doesn't that confuse the gospel? Of course it does. How could a person ever know that they are saved, ever know that they have met all those conditions? Assurance would become elusive. No, it would become impossible. Absolutely impossible. How many of you have met those conditions satisfactorily to yourself or to God? If disciples are born and not made, then boy, they sure have to hit the ground running. They say only 2% of Christians in America are actively leading people to Christ. But yet, Lordship Salvation people say part of discipleship is fishing for men. And if you're not fishing, you're not following. Well, there's a lot of Christians in that category, aren't there? I think they've just excluded themselves from the kingdom of God. Lordship Salvation misses the mark also because it makes salvation inaccessible. Here we end up in the same concern that we ended up yesterday when we talked about faith that we're taking away the hope of salvation to so many people. The gospel invitation is inclusive. It is a whosoever, but discipleship is exclusive. Jesus said, you can't be my disciple unless, or unless a man. When it came to salvation, Jesus invited everyone. His arms were open wide. When it came to discipleship, he pushed people away practically. I have a fellow in my church, and he started a pretty intensive discipleship ministry to teenagers. And he invited all the teenagers to come. He promoted it heavily. Only a few teenagers came. He was greatly discouraged, wanting to quit. And I told him, I said, wait a minute. Let's look at what you're trying to do. This is the nature of discipleship. It's the nature of the beast. You will never have people flock to discipleship classes if they're doing it right. People will not flock to suffer for Jesus or to take up their cross or deny themselves. That's the nature of discipleship. It is very exclusive. In John chapter 6, Jesus whittled a crowd of 6,000 down to 12. That would look good on his resume, huh? Had he applied to many churches today. 
Well, I managed to build a congregation of 6,000 down to 12. Church growth according to Jesus. Maybe we need to re-examine. There's a difference between Jesus saying, come to me and come after me. And I think there's a technical difference here. Small words, but great significance. When he says, come to me, he's inviting people to salvation. When he says, come after me, he's saying the same as follow me or be my disciple. I think it comes out in Matthew chapter 11 very clearly. You might want to look at Matthew chapter 11. Where I see he's actually extending both invitations to those Jews who were lost in the hopelessness of a pharisaical system, burdened by the requirements of the law. And he said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I think that is his invitation to salvation. Come to me. I will give you rest, the rest of righteousness, the rest of peace with God, of reconciliation with God, the rest that the Pharisaical system will not give you under its burden of law-keeping. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. Now that you've come, you take. Now that you've received, you learn from me, he says. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Rest speaking of the fellowship now that you can enjoy with God. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The whole figure of a yoke implies obligation and commitment and duty. I find both invitations here. Come to me and then take up and learn from me. And I have no problem with the way Jesus, of course, offered that invitation, but they are distinct. There's a big difference between believing and behaving, between receiving eternal life and taking up the cross for Jesus Christ. Conclude with a few perhaps more practical exhortations. When we teach about discipleship, let's be sure to keep them distinct but related. Jesus did say, go and make disciples. And the key verb in that passage, as you may know, is make disciples. The going probably implies the evangelism process, but his end result is that we are to make disciples of people. I believe that's why the book of Acts termed disciples synonymously with believers. It's bridging from the Gospels where Jesus, we're told to make disciples into what actually happened. People became enthusiastic followers of Jesus Christ. That's the norm for the book of Acts with but rare exceptions that are noted. Discipleship should follow salvation and salvation should flow into discipleship. How will that shape your ministry then? I saw a cartoon once of someone opening the nursery door in a hospital, a little baby's crawling out, and the nurse is saying, good luck. Dr. Rodmacher says you ought to be jailed for child abuse, child neglect. What do we want to do with those that come to know Christ as their Savior? Do they understand what discipleship is then? Do we want to lead them further? We ought to learn to disciple from a grace perspective. To keep grace first, it is the motivation to follow. The heart of discipleship is not what we do, but who we are in Christ. And unfortunately, I have seen that most discipleship material begins not with who we are, but what we should do. 
leaving the impression that if we establish a quiet time, we establish a prayer life, that if we read our Bibles regularly or memorize a certain number of verses, we are disciples. Those things are important. Those things may be very necessary for spiritual growth, but that's not where God starts. He starts by telling us who we are in Christ. And my friends, when somebody has the motivation, all the how-tos and all the disciplines will work themselves out eventually. When I became a Christian, I did not go to a church for about a year and a half, but I was so motivated by the love and the grace of God that I discovered that I would stay up at 3 o'clock in the morning reading my Bible, and I didn't need somebody to check it off on a list for me. Give them the motivation. Give them the reason. Give them the goal. And then help them with the disciplines along the way. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I was asked to write some discipleship materials. I've written, finished a rough draft. I spent a lot of time thinking about the approach I wanted to use because there are so many different approaches used. What is the biblical approach? You know what I basically ended up doing was taking the book of Romans and saying, here's where we're going. This is what's happened to you. This is who you are. Now let's talk about what you should do. It makes more sense to me. It's more biblical to me. Ground them in grace. Motivate them. Fire them up with grace. People will find a way to pray. They'll find a way to read their Bibles. Soldier, old soldier boy in Fort Hood, Texas, looking forward to seeing his girlfriend in Chicago. Then they had a security breach and they had to close the, the, uh, the, the fort down. They wouldn't allow anybody in. They wouldn't allow anybody out. He's greatly disappointed. Finally, he decided, he said, I'm going for it. He starts running towards the front gate and the soldier says, stop. He keeps running towards him and the soldier says, stop or I'll shoot. And the old soldier boy said, look, my mama's in heaven, my papa's in hell, my girlfriend's in Chicago, I'm going to see one of them tonight. You just give people the motivation. They'll find a way. But motivation is what's so lacking, I believe, in our Christian teaching. Motivation of the kingdom, motivation of rewards, motivation of love, motivation of grace, motivation of duty. They'll find a way. No wonder Jesus made love the first commandment. Maybe he knew what he was doing. He says, you just love and you'll keep all the others. Properly motivated. Learn to disciple from grace. Teach people who they are. Make that part of your discipleship process and materials. Another application might be that Christians who coast should be taught that that's not pleasing to God. We have an obligation and a duty to tell people who are Christians that God wants them to move on in the Christian life and not to stay in spiritual infancy or to remain in their diapers. And they should not be comfortable in their diapers. If they are, we should wipe their diapers in their face, make them smell the smell, make them feel uneasy. Christians who coast are not appreciating the grace of God, and we need to talk to them about it. Let me leave you with one thought. Christians have never changed the world. Only disciples have. So what are you going to do about it? What commitments are you going to make? What is God asking you to do where you are on your journey today? How will you challenge people to go on to a productive and fruitful life of discipleship?
The cost of discipleship is high, but the rewards are great. Thank you. Now, I believe we are going to take questions. What part does man's volition play in man's salvation? Well, that's a good question, but it's a tricky question. And, I, and, I, and I'm not saying you're trying to trick me, but I'm saying that when we start breaking faith into the mental, the emotional, and the volitional, I have a little problem because the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible only talks about faith. And, uh, and so I have trouble splitting the hairs that fine or putting a psychological grid over faith. What we, what we are convinced of, we will confide in and have confidence in. Um, how, does, how is the will involved? Some people may be more articulate than I am on this, but uh, I'm happy to say that I can't really quite figure it out. Um, but I know that the heart and the mind are used interchangeably in the scriptures. And the, the classical definition of breaking faith into three parts, you know, is, is not a scriptural um, division at all. Um, so where do we divide mental assent, for example, from um, emotional agreement or uh, the, an act of the will? I don't feel comfortable making the division if the Bible doesn't. I guess I'm just lazy in that respect. Can a believer grow under lordship salvation teaching? If so, how? That's a good question. I think a believer can grow in spite of lordship salvation teaching, yes. I think that, uh, you know, Lordship Salvation, people love the Lord and that they can communicate that love. And, 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 and some of the teachers really have a ministry uh, that amplifies grace, name their ministries after grace, and, and they understand grace. Uh, they may be illogical in applying it in some points, but surely they have things to teach and they teach the Bible and an individual can be motivated by those things and grow. I don't think, however, if somebody takes Lordship Salvation seriously, that they're going to be as someone was saying yesterday, liberated to a life of freedom and joy that God wants you to enjoy. And uh, my experience and the testimonies I hear from others is that those who sit on consistently under Lordship Salvation teaching, often those ministries take a more legalistic tone and uh, more, more performance is expected, and uh, that's unfortunate. So yeah, a, a believer can grow under Lordship Salvation teaching. I, I think we would concede that. How would they grow? I think because uh, they're growing in spite of what might be taught. Or maybe they haven't thought it out all the way, luckily. What about Mark 5, 18 through 19? What about it? I don't know. Mark 5, 18 through 19, and he got into the boat. When he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. I don't know what the uh, real desire is behind the question. You wouldn't let him follow him, I see. Um, it could be that as a demon-possessed man, he may not have had the credibility uh, at that point. Maybe he needed to establish some credibility. Maybe he needed to get uh, a, a verification that he had been delivered from the demons by, uh, by his relatives and friends that he knew so well. But that, that's a good question. I, I'd probably like to think about it more, but that's, uh, that's one interpretation I've heard of it. It could have been that the timing was not right for Jesus uh, to, um, 
take him on as a disciple as well. He was not yet willing to disclose all, that, all of himself that he was. Well, I'd already talked about how lordship affects the focus and the atmosphere of the local church. And um, uh, I have just heard from people who have come from churches like that, that there is a, uh, a spirit, a little a spirit, just one degree or another of legalism, of, um, of a negative type of preaching, uh, of uh, an expectation to performance uh, or to put on. I think that in the most extreme cases, you're going to fall into externalism. And uh, instead of really developing the inner, inner qualities and virtues of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did you say in the, the word disciple means in the book of Acts? The word disciple in the book of Acts means the same as it means in the Gospels, follower or student. I'm just saying that in the book of Acts, um, disciples is used interchangeably with Christians. It says the Christians were first called disciples, for example. And uh, what, what I'm saying is, is that... I think that Luke is just looking at what Jesus said to do, which was to make disciples, and he's saying now that that's happened. And so he's just looking at the community as a whole, as a group of devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And so as a whole, we would say that they were disciples, and, and Luke was comfortable in calling them that, although he knew there were those who um, were not following. Um, and, and there, but those instances in the book of Acts um, merit special attention, and so Luke explains what happened in those situations. Okay, I'm not quite sure I understand. Don't all people need to recognize their own sin before they can believe in Jesus for eternal life? How can someone believe in Jesus when they don't know about their own sin? Galatians 3, 24 and 25. Well, I, I think, I hope I didn't say anything to deny that, but I, I think, yes, a person un to come to Jesus as Savior uh, logically demands Savior from what? Savior from our sin. So a person must recognize their sinfulness uh, or their sin, sinful condition, might be a better way of saying it, that they are separated from God because of their sinful condition. Please deal with the rich young ruler. I was thinking it'd be a good to do a whole conference on the rich young ruler because that is such a, a controversial passage and such a key passage for lordship salvation. I don't know that I can deal with it right now. Is this an invitation? If so, to what? My interpretation of, of the rich young ruler is explained in my dissertation, but what I think Jesus is doing to a man who was self-righteous and thought that he had kept all the law and thought he could get into heaven by what he had done, was to then, Jesus seemed to be, what he seems to be doing to me is saying, okay, let's assume, for the sake of argument, that you've done everything. Now, go and sell everything, give it to the poor. And then when he's asked to do that, the rich young ruler says, oh man, I can't do that. And so by going further, Jesus really exposes the hypocrisy of his first uh, stance, that he really hadn't surrendered everything to the Lord or fulfilled the law perfectly. So in a sense, I think that we see there both an invitation uh, for eternal life, but also for discipleship in that passage. Would you label Lordship's gospel a heresy? Uh, not on tape. I'm a little more ironic than probably some of the people in our movement. I, I don't, <laughs> I think long and hard before I want to call a brother in Christ a heretic. Um, I realized Apostle Paul didn't have much qualms about that, but he was the Apostle Paul, and I'm not. And, um, you know, undoubtedly these people love the Lord, and uh, it's a different gospel, if, if that's your definition of heresy. Yeah, it depends. You know, but, you know, they talk out of both sides of their mouth is the problem. On, on the one hand, so many of them will say, yeah, I believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. 
And they'll argue that up and down and write some of the most beautiful things. And then, <laughs> then over here, they'll take it all away and something else that they say are right. So I guess they're heresy half the time. The thief on the cross is such an awesome example of grace and faith and action. How can you discuss this with someone under lordship? I was told it was an exception. Um, an exception. I, I would ask, well, on what basis do you think it's an exception? Um, there's nothing that I see of to make it an exception. You have other examples you could probably turn to, like the Philippian jailer who was uh, uh, himself facing death, getting ready to kill himself, and uh, yet he was told only to believe. No requirements put on him, no demands made of him. Uh, I think the burden of proof somebody wants to call an exception is that they prove that it's an exception. Because of the prevalence of lordship thinking, how do you incorporate in your preaching to a mixed crowd the message of discipleship and salvation clearly, especially in a church where disciples are bringing their non-Christian friends? It seems Jesus did it well in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, but he maybe didn't have this confusion the lordship that lordship salvation has produced. How can we be the judges of where someone needs to be in their process of discipleship? Well, that's an excellent question. An excellent question uh, I think every pastor or preacher would have to deal with almost every Sunday because you're in a crowd of folks and you have people there who are unchurched, unbelievers. You have people who have been in church all of their life. How do, you, how do you preach to such a crowd? I face that decision every Sunday. I think you just have to put some cookies on every shelf. And, um, of course, if you're preaching expositionally, your text determines your main message. But I try to be very careful and sensitive to everybody in my presence. And I may begin with something like, now what I'm talking about today is for those who have been Christians and know Christ as their Savior, uh, if this doesn't make sense to you, then maybe you need to know Christ as your Savior. Either I'll begin that way or I'll end that way. Um, I preach commitment. Uh, in a discipleship passage, I may end the sermon by saying, now, this is what God requires of and asks of you if, as a disciple. But there's only one thing he asks of you if you don't know him as Savior, and that's that there's only one command he wants you to obey, and that's to believe. I, I do that almost every Sunday because you have to, as a pastor, you guys know to appeal to such a large and broad group. I think we're going to close it there. Okay? Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.